1: That's stamps.com. Code Program.
0: Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada. And of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and navigating blurred lines. Today on the show, we're diving deep into the Canadian discourse about the news coming out of Israel and Palestine. Joining me this week, first, you've probably seen his work on the CBC, The National Observer, Jacobin, Ricochet, The Breach, The Maple, or the Canadian Jewish News. He is literally everywhere. It's Jeremy Appel. Hey.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Matea. Just wondering, do I have to answer everything with a question? Is this Uh, no,
0: no, it's not that kind of show. It would get exhausting. (laughs) Born in Al Quds, commonly referred to as Jerusalem, he is a professor of sociology at Mount Royal University and a policy analyst at Al Shabaka. It's Muhammad Ayash. So happy to have you on the show.
3: Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, let's get into it. Events in Israel and Palestine over the past month and a half have been absolutely impossible to ignore. News has been breaking by the minute. We've seen new information, misinformation, hot takes, and some, frankly, very cold takes, and it's felt almost impossible to keep up. We are all hearing, reading, watching, and scrolling through the coverage of the region from a distance. In Canada, the political discourse I've seen on this issue has given me serious whiplash. Following the October 7th attacks on Israel and the violence that's ensued, the conversations that I've been seeing on my Twitter and Instagram feeds have felt so different from the conversations that I've been having in person. And what's often been missing from the conversations online has been nuance, like any nuance at all. We wanted to take some time on this show to get to the root of this contention, especially because I think there's a lot happening in the background that's been getting lost in mainstream political discourse. From lobby groups to the conflation of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism and the role of grassroots activism to the rising incidence of alleged hate-motivated attacks. For instance, a Jewish school in Montreal was shot up twice, and just this past weekend, the Jewish Community Council in Montreal was hit by a Molotov cocktail overnight. And in Toronto, a man is facing eight charges after allegedly confronting several people at a mosque, according to a Toronto police report. Police say that he threw a rock at them and yelled slurs and then attacked them with a bike chain. This man was arrested in connection with what police say are multiple hate motivated assaults throughout the city. All of this news has many people feeling worried and scared. But at a moment when talking about these issues is starting to feel kind of impossible, it's actually more critical than ever to actually have these discussions. So we want to have our own conversation here on the backbench with two people who have already been having these difficult discussions between themselves. In this episode, we'll unpack how the conflict in Israel and Palestine continues to impact domestic Canadian political discourse, and most importantly, Why? A couple weeks ago now, I think, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were involved in some Twitter beef, with Netanyahu pretty sharply criticizing Trudeau for his response to what's going on in Israel and Palestine. What do you guys think this tells us about how political discourse here in Canada has been unfolding?
2: I think it is very microcosmic of how the broader discourse around Israel and Palestine unfolds in Canada it's just with two you know major global political leaders cuz on on the one hand you have Trudeau who has been completely supportive of Israel's campaign of slaughter in in Gaza suggesting that maybe it's gone a bit too far and maybe uh, there are too many women and children and elderly being killed and you have Benjamin Netanyahu just lose his goddamn mind because nothing but complete unquestioning loyalty is good enough for the Israeli right wing and its supporters in Canada. You had, you know, Friends of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, for example, which does a lot of very important work on remembering the Holocaust. They're... President Michael Levitt, who used to be a liberal MP, who, whenever Trudeau would express the mildest, slightest criticism of Israel, which is very rare, he would immediately push back and say that this is gone too far. And of course, you saw him side with Netanyahu and the as well as B'nai B'rith and the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Those are sort of the big three pro-Israel lobby groups in Canada. And it's easy with this discourse to loose sight of the fact that Trudeau has been totally supportive of Israel's policy in Gaza. I mean, he won't call for a ceasefire, even though, you know, a couple dozen of his MPs have done so. And still, that's not enough. It's just complete undying loyalty that the right-wing Israeli government and its surrogates in Canada want to see.
3: I mean, I agree with Jeremy here. This was... It's that I wouldn't even use the word criticism. It's just a mild comment on what Israel was doing. Canada is a staunch ally of Israel. And really, the, the Canadian policies are in line with exactly how the Israeli state would like the Canadian position to be, how the Americans would like the Canadian position to be. But this was, I think, for Trudeau, a way to speak to the concerns that he's hearing from many communities across Canada that he was seeing all these protests, he was seeing the numbers of people that are showing up on the streets. And I believe he only made that mild comment to try to appease some of those communities. And I think he did it out of self-interest in terms of securing voting uh, blocks and communities. Because to me, the the words are meaningless when they're not supported with action and policy. So the comments that he made are entirely meaningless and are, are for me, purely driven for internal electoral concerns that he had. not with changing Canadian policy on what Israel is doing right now.
0: Yeah, I think you both touched on some things that are interesting in terms of there's like this rift that's almost happening in the Liberal Party, not just among like voters, but among members of parliament in terms of where they stand on the conflict. So we saw, you know, dozens of Liberal MPs joining uh, an open letter calling for a ceasefire along with a number of NDP MPs. On the other hand, we saw five members of parliament, two Liberals and three Conservatives arrived in Jerusalem last Monday for a visit that was intended to show solidarity with israel and i think that the sort of note of like domestic electoral concerns are really factoring into how individual mps are taking a stance or not on this conflict is definitely quite accurate i guess like what does that tell us about canada's political position as a state as well as like what to maybe look for given that an election is just like barreling towards us and this actually might end up being like an electoral ballot box issue in a way that foreign policy often isn't
3: Canada's uh, policy toward uh, Palestine and Israel uh, has gone through some changes over the years. It used to be a bit more balanced, for example, in the, in the nineties. But since the early 2000s, it has been very staunchly pro-Israel and basically doing anything that was needed to support the Israeli state, regardless of what it's doing, regardless of its, uh, of its actions uh, against the Palestinians political scientists have studied this from electoral uh, politics perspective from a foreign policy perspective from the, the world view of the different governments that we've had but to me ultimately it goes back to canada's role in this larger american imperial hegemonic bloc that sees israel as a, as a critical what I would call imperial outpost for it in the region. You know, the U.S. will use the language of it's in the strategic interests of the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. You know, Biden calls it the greatest investment the U.S. ever makes. You know, Canada's staunch support of Israel is better explained through that lens. But from an internal sort of uh, electoral politics perspective, yeah, different MPs will take positions that will more or less try to advance their re-election campaigns, and I think it should be understood within that context. But let me say this. I don't think that liberal MPs are as naive as they sound in their statements. They are not. They know the reality on the ground. I say this from personal experience talking to some of these politicians. Canadian public can handle the truth, can handle honest conversations, but these MPs don't want to have these honest conversations because I think they know that they will lose on those honest conversations, that, that if we do have honest conversations, then their policies won't make sense and will not be supported by many Canadians.
2: I can't remember in my lifetime on any issue this large a gap between what the powers that be are saying, especially in the immediate weeks after October 7th, and what people on the streets want. I mean, you have Canada voting against its own policies at the United Nations. It's not only this gap between what Canadians and the government thinks, it's this gap between what the government says and what the government actually is doing on the international stage.
0: Yeah. So, Muhammad, I'm glad you brought up this, this notion of, like, actually, in large part, I think Canada's policy towards Israel has become, like, increasingly influenced by sort of the U.S.'s stance in the region and a desire for alignment. And, like, I think that's true just generally of Canada's foreign policy, not just in the Middle East, but, like, in terms of how they orient themselves towards, like, the Indo-Pacific region, like, really just everywhere. We also mentioned kind of, like, lobby groups domestically, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, or Cija, as well as B'nai B'rith and others. I know, Jeremy, you've written about this and you covered Siege's recent conference that happened in mid-October. What were your thoughts on that conference?
2: Well, just to be clear, I was not at the conference. They would never let me in. But Independent Jewish Voices had a mole on the inside who leaked a bunch of recordings to me. And I I think it's worth noting with this sort of conflation of criticism of any criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, that's done. But they deny that they're doing that. Right? They'll say, oh, you can criticize Israel. It just, you have to criticize it the exact same way you would criticize any other country. And it's like, what does that mean? They never provide an example of a criticism of Israel that's okay. All these exceptions they put towards criticism of Israel that could make it anti Semitic just narrow the confines of debate so much that you're left with, like, okay, you can criticize the weather in Tel Aviv, right? So there was that component, which was a major component, again, sort of using the sort of rhetoric of, of, of safety and inclusion to essentially say we need to shelter Jewish people from hearing things about Israel that they don't want to hear, assuming that all Jewish people... Identify with the state of Israel, which is of course an erroneous assumption. But what I also noticed is particularly from Siege's president, uh, Shimon Koffler Fogel in his remarks: on the one hand, these groups are using the rhetoric of diversity and inclusion and safety, you know, or weaponizing that rhetoric to tamp down on any Position on Israel that isn't their own. But then on the other hand, you have Shimon Koffler Fogel saying wokeness is anti-Semitic, in that it creates this binary between oppressor and oppressed, and has, in his words, hijacked social justice movements, which he said are in the Jewish DNA, which I thought was a very interesting phrasing. When anti-Semitism was spoken about at this conference, it was Treated as, like, this metaphysical phenomenon without any material basis, without any connection towards other forms of oppression that just exists that they say is the world's oldest hatred. I, I don't know how you measure that. I mean, it is a pretty old hatred, though, in their defense. But... I mean, it can't be isolated from other forms of oppression if, if we're going to take it seriously and we're going to recognize the threat of anti-Semitism and in, in the very people who are most uh, prolific in promulgating it are exactly the same people who are promulgating Islamophobia and racism and all these other forms of oppression.
3: Just to kind of put this in the broader uh, context, Since at least the 1970s, the Israeli state uh, has driven this project of uh, equating anti-Zionism and what I would say, you know, uh, uh, decolonial anti-racist critiques, which are based on the Palestinian experience. That's what I call the Palestinian critique of Zionism in Israel, which is a critique that is based on the experience of Palestinians of Zionism and the creation of the Israeli state and the ongoing expulsion of Palestinians from their land at the hands of the Israeli state. They decided to turn that into anti-Semitism, and they called it the quote-unquote new anti-Semitism. This can be traced to the, you know, uh, uh, very high-ranking officials within the Israeli state in the 1970s, like Abba Iban, who really drove that kind of discourse. Yeah, so when we fast forward to today, we see an intensification of that equation of uh, any sort of decolonial or anti-racist critique of Zionism in Israel with anti-Semitism in an effort to basically expel the Palestinian experience from a public discourse. The Israeli state is built on the idea that Palestinians should not exist as a political entity, as a historical subject, and whose experiences should be, you know, thrown into the dustbin of history. So the framing of Palestinian critiques as, and these are not just made by Palestinians, they're made by some Israelis, uh, Jewish scholars, activists, uh, non-Palestinians and non-Jews and non-Israelis, but there's an effort there to expel that from public discourse. And that's why they have weaponized this new semitism in that effort to turn it into basically hate speech and and to speak to jeremy's points in terms of you know how this process has played out it has always been a top down process not a bottom up grassroots process so hill aked in their book Friends of Israel, excellent book, calls these, you know, borrowing from the literature on social movements, they call these astroturf groups, right? Like they're, as opposed to grassroots groups, they're, they're very top down. And you can see that in the in the way of thinking that shapes their discourse. So to go back to the example that Jeremy brought up, when when he goes, well, they say, you can't direct any critiques against Israel that you wouldn't against any other country. What does that even mean? So that doesn't make sense to us from the grassroots. But if you look at it from the perspective of this was a top-down type of discourse, it starts to make more sense what they had in mind. Because in the top-down sort of spaces, their critiques of the Canadian state, for example, are limited to, you know, I I like this political party, not that political party. They're not in touch with how we critique Canada as a settler colonial racist state in its foundation. But in their worldview, they don't hear that. They don't hear our discourse, our serious critiques of the Canadian state's, so when they say things like, oh, you can't call Israel a settler colonial state, it's because in their world, they don't hear that we also call Canada a settler colonial state. Like, So we're actually not breaking any of those quote unquote rules that they have. Uh, when I call Israel a settler colonial state, I'm, I do the exact same thing on Canada.
0: So we've talked a lot about how, you know, lobby groups and this sort of top-down approach has really tried to conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism or critique of the Israeli state. And I think, you know, one thing that's sort of unfortunate about that conflation is I think in many ways it actually distracts uh, attention away from the very real instances of like violent anti-Semitism that we do see in Canada and in the rest of the West, right? And so since October 7th, we have seen reports of a rise in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that I think has come about as a result of this conflict being so much on people's minds and in the news. So in Toronto, for instance, police have investigated 38 instances of anti-Semitic hate crimes and then 17 related to Islamophobia, anti-Palestinian or anti-Arab hate. And this is significantly higher than during the same period this time last year. Uh, In Montreal, police have received 98 reports of hate crimes and hateful incidences between October 7th and November 7th, uh, of which 73 were directed against the Jewish community and 25 against Muslim or Arab communities. So I I guess what what I want to know, because like, you know, we've been talking a lot about, well, there's maybe this sort of unwarranted concern about anti-Semitism insofar as it relates to critique of Israel. But I think for a lot of people who are like really worried about the rise in anti-Semitism or in kind of like Islamophobia, anti-Arab hate it's like political critiques and then these real violent instances kind of get like melded together in the mind. And it all feels like part of one trend. I guess, what do you guys make of this?
3: As the Israeli state weaponized anti-Semitism, it it actually advanced anti-Semitic trope that the Jewish communities in Canada, in the U.S., in the U.K., in France, in Germany are sort of quote, unquote, you know, naturally aligned with the Israeli state project and support the Israeli state project, and that any critiques of the Israeli state is also a direct attack on these Jewish communities and their safety. Now, as they advance that connection in people's imaginary and in people's way of thinking about this discourse, they actually laid the groundwork for the rising cases of anti-Semitism, the real ones that we see. Because they conflated Jewish life in Canada and elsewhere with... The Israeli state. And of course, the reality is, is that Jewish communities here are not all uh, certainly aligned with the Israeli state. And of course, like, let, let me be very clear. It, it is completely wrong, hateful, anti Semitic to, to do that, to associate any Jewish person that you meet in Canada with the Israeli state and its actions. That's completely wrong and unacceptable and anti Semitic. But the, the Israeli state and the pro Israel lobby is precisely the source that connected Jewish life in Canada to the politics of the region. So we need to talk about that and we need to do a a better job of calling that out and opposing pro-Israel lobbies in their conflation of Jewish life everywhere with the Israeli state. So, So that's really important. There needs to be a lot of work done here in Canada to to disentangle this conflation of of anti-Zionism and critiques of Israel with anti-Semitism and, and to oppose its weaponization, because that does have dangerous consequences for
2: Palestinians
3: and for Jews, as I've said before.
2: Yeah, and I, I think one effect of this conflation that we've been describing, it also makes it Hard for people to actually talk about anti-Semitism and identify it and seek to address it when when you're tying in firebombing a synagogue or shooting bullet holes in two Jewish day schools with someone saying something stupid at a rally, right? It makes people tune out, talk of anti-Semitism. When you hear about anti-Semitism, it's like, oh, what is the pro-Israel lobby complaining about now?
0: One thing that really troubled me in terms of like an attack on Jewish community that has happened since October 7th, and this isn't a Canadian example, but the attack on the Shalem Aleichem Cultural Center in New York, which is like a Yiddish cultural center. If you know much about sort of the history of Yiddish what yiddish speaking communities have been like in New York there's really not much of an affiliation with Israel Israel has like done a lot to sort of devalue and deprioritize the yiddish language in an attempt to people to get people to like speak modern Hebrew instead kind of sees it as almost like a backwatery thing when really yiddish has its like own deep history deep culture and deep roots in New York like that's an instance where it's very clearly an attack on Jewish community and is like not really anything to do with like principled anti-Zionism. I think that the effect that's been happening with the conflation of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is it does kind of produce this like rally around the flag impact, at least what I've seen among Jewish communities, right? That it's sort of like if you mix all of these instances together and there's this overall like climate of fear that in many ways is legitimate because there are these real instances of anti-Semitism, it sort of serves to, I guess, like, Stifle, I would say, rich political discussions within Jewish communities. And like speaking to people I know, like I'm not Jewish, but I know a lot of Jewish people in Toronto. I've seen a real kind of like generation gap where people that are my age are often going out to like pro-Palestinian rallies, are critical of the Israeli government and their policy towards Palestinians. But their older family members are very much in this mode of like, well, everyone is against the Jewish community. The fact that there are these large rallies happening, criticizing the state of Israel is indicative of how hated we are in Canada. We really need to all kind of rally together as a community. There's this real sense of fear that comes out of, I think, like genuine intergenerational trauma and experiences with anti-Semitism. Emma Titel had a, I thought, like a very good articulation of this in a column in the Toronto Star, or at least like one of the better articulations I've seen of this concept of just like, this is how people are feeling, right? I think it was a good window into like what people are thinking of. You both are, like, very kind of in this discourse, not just in your work, but in terms of also being, like, members of communities that have been affected by all this. Why do you think, like, people have been so activated by this moment in particular? Like, how concerned are you both about the rising anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiment that we're seeing?
2: Anti-Semitism does exist. In many different circles. But there's also a far right that has been mobilizing in recent years and sees this as a great opportunity to spread its, its hatred and have it blamed on another group of people that white supremacists don't like, which are Arabs and Muslims. I think there's also been this really disturbing trend of Holocaust revisionism From the pro-Israel crowd, not the pro-Palestinian crowd, when talking about October 7th, I mean Robin Urbach, who has been one of the most grotesque voices on this topic, say that, oh, well, the Nazis tried to hide what they did But Hamas broadcasted it to the world, which, I I mean, there wasn't social media in in the time of the Nazis. So I don't think that is making the point she thinks is. And in an even more extreme example, you have Barbara Kay saying that while the Nazis only tried to kill all the Jews in Europe, Hamas wants to kill all the Jews in the world, which isn't true in, in, in either case.
3: You have to put it in a context where for years, the Israeli state keeps telling everyone it represents Jews everywhere, that uh, all Jewish communities across the world support the Israeli state and an attack on the Israeli state is an attack on all of these Jewish communities. And unfortunately, then people with mental health issues or with radical uh, extremist views acting as lone wolves will go, OK, well, I need to act on that. And and, and like I said, that's wrong and, and hateful and, and it should be stopped and opposed. Uh, but it's expected. Uh, it doesn't shock scholars of violence to see that sort of thing happen. When you unleash state violence like that, it does uh, tend to show up in very different ways across the world. So to me, if you really do care about rising anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian racism, then you should be aiming all of your energies towards stopping the source that is giving rise to all of these things, which is the Israeli state settler colonial project. That is precisely where this problem needs to be addressed. Addressed. Otherwise, we will not be able to successfully deal with any of these issues. All of the statements that came from police, RCMP, Canadian politicians, from the NDP to the Greens, to the Liberals, to the Conservatives, their message was, we're going to prevent attacks on Jewish communities here too. Like the whole thing was framed in a way that this was an operation launched against Jews everywhere and that the Canadian state will now do its part to protect Jewish communities here from the Hamas operation. I mean, that's ludicrous, but that's precisely the message and the tone that our politicians and police institutions set at the very beginning.
2: allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.
0: I want to turn to kind of talking about protests then, because both of you, I think, have mentioned kind of throughout there has been like a real groundswell of. Canadian opposition to just like the absolute campaign of bombardment that the Israeli government has launched in Gaza since October 7th. We've seen many Canadians from across all sorts of communities, like we've seen Jewish communities really mobilize against what's going on in Gaza. We've seen, of course, like a lot of diaspora Muslim communities be involved, but also people that don't have any sort of tie to the region at all. On the flip side of that, we have also seen pro-Israel rallies, I think especially right after October 7th, just sort of the initial response of, well, this is like an awful terrorist attack and we did stand in solidarity with Israel. I guess, what have you both noticed about this particular moment in Canada in terms of grassroots activism and mobilization?
3: It's good to know that people still have a conscience and can see reality despite the concealment of that reality by our mainstream media and by our politicians who refuse to call things by their name when it comes to Palestine and Israel, that people are seeing right through that ideological curtain. I mean, here in Calgary, I don't think I've ever seen a rally that was as big as the ones that we've had the last couple of weeks. Then it's a very very diverse crowd, uh, people from all walks of life and all races, ethnicities, religions. It's great to see. They're very peaceful protests, uh, safe for families. You know, there's many kids around. It's actually, in general, a, a very good atmosphere. But the, the coverage of them has been trying to paint them as hate marches and, and as unsafe spaces, which is preventing some people or making some people think twice about going to them.
2: Yeah, and I think Calgary is a prime example of efforts to suppress these protests. I mean, you had an organizer arrested and charged with causing a hate-motivated public disturbance because he led a chant of, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But the president of the Calgary Jewish Federation wrote an op-ed in the Calgary Herald that repeatedly said that these rallies contain open calls for the extermination of Jews. She didn't provide a single example, not a single example. And you know, if she was pushed to give an example, it would be, oh, they're chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Which again, it takes an incredible amount of mental gymnastics to frame this this call for freedom for everyone between two geographical locations as inherently violent And this person, by the way, Lisa Libin, sits on Calgary's anti-racism task force, yet she's framing these fundamentally anti-racist, anti-oppressive protests as being racist and oppressive. And it's just such a profound inversion of the reality.
0: Language has been seized upon so much in terms of, like, critiques of protests I've seen, like, multiple National Post-type columnists, like, Tristan Hopper, I think, has been the most aggressive about this, like, literally referring to these protests as pro-Hamas rallies, which is bananas, because it's like, even if you want to cherry-pick kind of, like, the worst possible, like, couple individuals from these protests, I don't think it's in any way accurate to characterize the nature of these protests overall as in any way supportive of the actions of October 7th by Hamas. By and large, like, these are protests where the vast majority of attendees. Are protesting in opposition to Israel's response to October 7th, not supporting that they think what happened on October 7th was good or defensible. I think that the specific thing that really gets me about the criticism of From the River to the Sea is that the very same phrase appears in the charter of Likud, which is like the governing party in Israel. I think that the reason why people uh, oppose it and think that it means genocide or means the elimination of Jewish life in Israel or Palestine is because when Likud says it, they do actually mean one state from the river to the sea, no room for. Palestinians. I want to talk about a couple of instances where police have laid charges or made arrests following protests. The protests that occurred at an Indigo bookstore in Toronto. So what we saw was that eleven people uh, went to the flagship store of Indigo at Bay and Bloor, glued up posters to the building with photos of the founder and CEO Heather Reisman, and covered her image with red paint. So according to reporting by CP24, Indigo has actually been a subject of boycott campaigns for years over Heather Reisman's Hesseg Foundation for Lone Soldiers, which, as was mentioned earlier, is a charity that provides scholarships to IDF veterans who don't have family in Israel. So essentially people who go to Israel specifically to join the IDF who are not being conscripted, who don't have family there. They're just deciding to go. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East has explained that unlike Israeli civilians, the lone soldiers are not under a civil obligation to participate. They're volunteers. So 11 people have now been charged in connection with this protest and police in Toronto have been characterizing it or treating it, at least at the outset, uh, as a hate motivated incident. So basically the charges that people are facing include mischief over $5,000 and conspiracy to commit an indictable offense. There was also reporting uh, done about the arrests that took place saying that the 11 people who were arrested essentially were arrested in overnight raids. What differentiates this from other protests and what do you make of the police response compared to like what the offense was?
2: As you mentioned, Matea, this protest has been going on for years. I read a Globe and Mail piece from Sean Fine, who I uh, otherwise hold in higher guard as, as a reporter, that was framed as they were arrested for this protest targeting the Jewish founder of. Chapters indigo. Halfway through the story, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, she set up this foundation to fund IDF volunteers. Like, talk about burying the lead. I mean, that that's the story. Yeah, she's Jewish, but it doesn't matter. What's the difference between this and other protests? I would say that because it targeted Heather Reisman personally that perhaps it was easier to frame as being this anti-Semitic attack on a Jewish individual. But, I mean, you read about it for five minutes, and it it becomes clear that it obviously wasn't that. Look,
3: I have no doubt in my mind that that these overhanded tactics that the police are using, in this case and others, like the arrest in Calgary, are driven by political considerations that are trying to suppress uh, protests for Palestine and specifically to, to prevent the appearance of disruptive action. So let's, let's also uh, take a step back here and, and look at why disruptive action is starting to appear. People went onto the streets and protested in huge numbers, uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire from the beginning of this. And the Canadian government saw that huge number of people, saw the petitions, saw the groundswell support for, for a ceasefire across Canada, and they did nothing. So when that happens as a scholar of social movements I can tell you when that happens people go well we need to move to the next step if protesting and you know writing letters to politicians and signing petitions and all of that if that is not causing the issue to change the policy to change then we need to go to another level and that other level is disruptive action so I can tell you from a social movement scholarly perspective this is not some uh, radical uh, insight this is just people who study social movements across the world and across history uh, the most effective form of action is economic disruption, which will often be illegal. So activists tend to know that. So they, they undertake disruptive action that will specifically target the economy in general in order to get elites and powerholders to change their policy and behavior. Now, uh, the state will often respond uh, in a heavy-handed way to such disruptions because it does see them as a threat, because it does fear the rise of disruptive action a- and sees it as an effective method of forcing powerholders to change their policy. So when powerholders don't want to change their policy, they go with a very heavy-handed police response. Yeah, the heavy-handed response has to be understood in political terms for sure.
0: So another instance of protest uh, that we've seen is that there's been a coordinated effort where protesters staged sit-ins at 17 offices of MPs across 12 cities in Canada. Uh, And the MP offices were selected based on who had abstained from calling for a ceasefire. And specifically, it was targeting MPs who are members of the government. So we saw, like, at Justin Trudeau's Montreal Writing Office, I know there were also sit-ins at offices in, like, the part of Toronto where I live. So Rivarani was my MP in Parkdale High Park. There was a sit-in at his office. I believe there was also one at Julie Dershowitz's office in Davenport. Um, And in some cases, uh, including at the prime minister's Montreal writing office, we saw protesters get removed by police. So, you know, on the one hand, these are people that are physically present in an office where in theory, I suppose, they're trespassing. But it also does sort of raise the question of like, okay, if you can't protest a politician like at their office and we've seen, uh, you know, arrests made in conjunction with organizing rallies and with other kinds of actions, it's like, well, what kinds of protests even are acceptable? I guess like what does the response to these sit-ins tell us, I guess, about the state of, of protest in Canada right now?
3: Uh, again, disruptive action is the path towards change when, when the institutions ignore you. If it disrupts the normal operations of everyday social, political, cultural, and economic life, then power holders that are ignoring you will have to take notice.
0: You know, we've seen that there was this four-day humanitarian pause. Israel is committed basically to resuming its campaign in Gaza to try and eliminate Hamas. I guess, Jeremy, looking forward, is there anything maybe that you're going to be watching out for in the weeks to come?
2: Yeah, there are a few things. Uh, I mean, first of all, the situation in the West Bank and Jerusalem, which I believe is where Mohammed has a law of family, is also quickly escalating. You've seen uh, really the Israeli... State uh, use this opportunity during this brief humanitarian pause to really escalate in the West Bank where settlers are destroying Palestinian villages. It will be interesting to see how, you know, nominally progressive politicians like Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden respond to what's likely an escalation. I mean, by the time this episode is out, Israel could be bombing Gaza again, or they may extend the humanitarian. I I mean, I want to call it a humanitarian pause because there's nothing humanitarian about letting in trickles of aid and engaging in these exchanges. It's going to get a lot worse is, is, is my prediction. And I would just urge people to not be intimidated. By these, these baseless accusations of anti-Semitism, but also not to dismiss real actions of anti-Semitism, and of course, Islamophobia we need to be morally consistent. Now is the time for moral clarity and bravery.
0: And on that note, let's adjourn. That's been The backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when, unfortunately, this will still be in the news. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also on Twitter at BackBenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Jeremy, where can people find you?
2: you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Appel, uh, 1025. I'm also on Blue Sky. You can also uh, subscribe to my newsletter on Substack called The Orchard.
0: And Mohanad, where can people find you?
2: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ayash Mohanad.
3: I can also be found on the you know, the university's MRU's um, uh, page. Uh, you can just search for my name at MRU. And, and a lot of my writings, my opinion pieces in Al Jazeera, The Baffler, uh, Middle East Eye and elsewhere are, are, are listed on there.
0: Fight Club is a 2004 fighting video game based on the 1999 film of the same name, which was in turn based on the 1996 novel of the same name. Completing story mode in Fight Club unlocks Fred Durst, the lead singer of Limp Bizkit, as a playable character in accordance with Durst's demand that any video game licensing the band's music include him as a playable character in the game. This episode was produced by Viva Lassard and Noor Azriyeh with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.